Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, hope you guys are all doing well. Uh, no, not everyone might not be. Uh, maybe you're coming into this morning uh, feeling really heavy-hearted or tired or cold or whatever the case may be. Uh, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm really excited for what God has to say to us this morning. Before we jump into it, um, real quick, two quick things. First of all, is I just I want to, uh, again, uh, encourage all the guys uh, to get to the men's retreat if you are able to do so. Last week into February, there's something special that happens when we get outside of our normal routines, our normal rhythms, uh, our normal responsibilities, and just have some time to connect and to connect with the Lord. Um, and so uh, I really want to encourage you guys to do that. We really believe that uh, in a world with so many broken versions of what it means to be a man, one of the great gifts that Jesus's church can give to the world is a community of spiritually alive and relationally and emotionally healthy men. And so we wanna learn what that looks like uh, as we follow Jesus in the South Bay. And so we're gonna devote a weekend to growing together, connecting with one another. We're designing this weekend to not just be for a guy that already feels connected, but especially for those that maybe don't feel connected yet. And there's nothing that accelerates community like a weekend away. And so it's gonna be an awesome some time, low key, but also full of some really rich time in God's word and worship and connection. And then we're going to play and have a good time together and do it river style, uh, which means highly and hopelessly relational. It's what we say all the time because that's who we are. Um, and so it's going to be awesome. Uh, the other thing I'm going to just say real briefly here is that we're going to be starting a new regular gathering after our beach services here uh, for the 20 and 30 something crowd. Uh, so we're going to call it second Sunday because it's going to be on the second Sunday of the month, you get it, you know. Uh, so second Sunday is going to start this in February. So the second Sunday of February, we're going to have an after party for if you're in your 20s or your 30s, unmarried, married, kids, no kids, whatever that means for you, but 20s and 30s. We're going to have an after party here every second Sunday of the month just as a point of connection. There's no like content or agenda. It's literally just like an after party. We'll have like breakfast burritos and play cornhole and hang out and We'll have name tags so that you feel like you can introduce yourself without being awkward about it. You know, like, so it's going to be a good time. Uh, and uh, you'll hear more about that later. But uh, look forward to it because I'm looking forward to it after the, uh, after the second Sunday of every month. Um, so we're going to be uh, continuing in our series uh, we're calling Ecclesia, which is the Greek word, the original language of the New Testament, for the church, uh, where we're learning what it means to be a people, not only individuals saved by God through grace in Jesus, but also a people adopted as the new spiritual family of God and now expressed in this particular community as the people of God, this new spiritual family. And what does that mean? And how do we live that out? And what is Jesus doing in and through this community as we learn to follow him together? And so we're going to be kind of um, shifting into a new phase of this series where we're going to be looking at the letters of the New Testament that were written to specific church communities uh, and asking ourselves in that letter, this big idea of this letter, what, what would God have to say to us, to our specific church community in our time and our place? We're going to be starting in the book of Galatians. Uh, we're going to be in Galatians. We're going to we're look specifically at Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 24. So if you've got your own Bible or device you want to pull that up on, you can read along with me as I read aloud. I'm going to read. I'm going to ask the Spirit of God to speak as we read this letter, this, this the letter of the New Testament written not just to an individual, but to a community of people, 
to, to encourage them in, in life with Jesus together, to remind them of who they are in Jesus together, to remind them of this new way of being human that God is knitting in us as we follow him in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 to 24, you can uh, listen as I read aloud, and then I'm going to pray one more time. You can also, like you prayed for Amanda's hat and dress not to fly off, uh, you can pray for my notes not to blow off, because then I'd just be up here rambling, uh, and no one wants that. So here we go. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 to 24. Uh, Here are the words of the Apostle Paul to the churches in Galatia. For you were called to freedom, brothers, not only to use, but only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry and sorcery and enmity and strive and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalry and dissensions and divisions and envy and drunkenness and orgies and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's God's word for us this morning, written by the Apostle Paul to the churches, the network of churches in a region called Galatia in his own context and style and language, but inspired by the Spirit of God. And every time we open up God's word, he has something to say to us. So let's pray right now that God would speak, that God would give us a fresh word for us as a community following Jesus here in the South Bay. Would you guys pray with me? God, we love you. And uh, we're so grateful for your grace, God. We pray that as we open up your word right now, you would open up our hearts. God, we, we come to you, God, from all kinds of different places and backgrounds and bringing different things into this morning and into this text and into community together. And I pray, God, that wherever we're coming from, whether this passage and what we're going to talk about is familiar or completely unfamiliar, whether we are full of joy or we're full of grief, whether we are full of faith or full of doubt, wherever we're coming, God, this morning, I pray that you have a fresh word for every single person here. Thank you that you love every person here, that we matter to you. God, thank you that we have the sure hope that, uh, of, of life with Jesus, that Jesus has done for us what we couldn't have done for ourselves. And I pray that in the safety of knowing your grace, in the safety of knowing there's literally nothing that any of us could ever do that would make you love us less, I pray, God, that you would help us to bring our full selves into the light, that we'd get not just information for our heads, but transformation in our hearts, and that you'd draw us to become the kind of men and women and the kind of community that you mean us to be. (laughs) And uh, Lord, I pray, God, that you would um, move and speak, and we just ask, come Holy Spirit. We ask for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm praying as I'm battling the wind. You guys probably, many of you had your eyes closed, but you didn't realize that the stand fell over. My Bible splayed everywhere in the middle of that prayer. But did I break? No, because I'm a professional. I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's like literally the opposite attitude we're going to talk about, because we're going to talk about how terrible self-righteousness is. Anyway, um, 
If we were to ask every single person in the South Bay about their knee-jerk reactions to the word church, the first words that come to mind when they hear the word church, it is not likely that the word freedom would be at the top of the list. To put it bluntly, to many, church communities do not seem free at all. If we were just to talk to our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, and maybe even, even those of us in our community here, to many, church communities do not seem free at all. And here's the thing, every community has shared values and boundaries, whether they're formal or informal. When a community gathers around some sort of commonality, there's like this expectation that there's gonna be something in common that draws them together. There's gonna be some sort of shared value, shared boundary to that community that defines that community. So when we talk about freedom and the problem that we have with churches and church communities maybe not seeming free, and especially as we'll see, maybe not living up to the, 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 the vision that we see in this passage of scripture, especially in the, in the book of Galatians, uh, we're not necessarily talking about a problem with boundaries or shared values per se. We know that any community that unites around some sort of common cause or finds commonality in something is going to have boundaries. There's going to be something that defines what that community is and what that means to be a part of that community and what shared values that community has. It's not that we have a problem with boundaries and shared values per se. So often, and for many, I think our issue is either with the specifics of those values and boundaries, which is in probably another conversation for another time, but in many, many cases when it comes to the church, it's not just the specifics of what those, those boundaries are and, and what those values are. It's, it's an issue with the heart with which those values and boundaries are expressed. We look at the church so often and it looks nothing like the compassionate heart of Jesus that we see in scripture. And before we go any further, I think it's really important to say, to, to acknowledge this reality, that while it's possible, it is possible for a church community to be unfaithful to Jesus by compromising Jesus's values. That is possible. And, and, but still we have to say, many church communities have represented a Jesus, misrepresented Jesus's values, or even made up values that aren't at the heart of Jesus at all. And so often churches have failed to communicate the values and boundaries from the heart of Jesus, and they do so in a way that looks nothing like his heart and his posture towards us. And if it frustrates you to look at church communities, to look at the history of the church, and to see, to see a posture of faith that looks nothing like the compassion and freedom of Jesus, know that Jesus beat you to the punch. It frustrated him too. You can read the story in the Gospels of Jesus literally turning over tables in the temple courts because of ways of doing life with God that looked nothing like the heart of God. And if you've been hurt by that, I want to say that I'm really sorry. Maybe it's from me or from, from uh, this church community. Maybe it's from another church community. But uh, whether I had anything to do with it or this church community had anything to do with it, it's important for us to take the heart of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 when he looked out at the sin of his people, though he had nothing directly to do with it, and he came before God and he said, God, we have sinned. To take responsibility for being a part of a people. And so that's a reality that so many of us have experienced, and we need to, we need to acknowledge it. And given that so many look at church communities and see anything but freedom, 
what are we to make of a passage like the passage that we just read? You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Called to freedom as a community following Jesus. What are we to make of what we just read. Because this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of first century churches in, a, in, in communities in a region of modern day Turkey that we call Galatia. But it's written to, these, uh, written to these specific communities to not just be individuals who are free, but to be, a, to be church communities, to be a new spiritual family that is free. This letter would have been passed around to these various churches uh, in the region, and it would have been read together in community, and they would have received it, the words of the Apostle Paul, as the words of God saying, what would Jesus have for us as a community? And they would have received it as a word for them, you are called to freedom. And this is not just a word for them, it's a word for us. It's a word for our church community, for our place and time here in the South Bay. It's a word for the River Church that we are to be a community of true freedom. So again, what are we to make of all of that? What does it mean to be a community of true freedom in the way of Jesus? And to get our minds around it, we need to see how this passage and kind of the letter of Galatians in general, but how this passage answers three questions along those lines. We're going to look at how it, uh, this passage answers the questions of a community set free from what? Free from something, but what are we free from? A community set free from what? A community free for what? And a community free how? So a community that's set free from what, a community set free for what, and a community free how. And we'll begin tackling that first question, which is going to take us the longest to unpack. So don't get worried if we were 10 minutes from now and we're still answering this first question and you're like, oh boy, I wanted to go to brunch. I want to watch the Rams game later or just get on with my life. And this guy's still rambling up at the front. Fret not. We'll, we'll move on. But here, we'll begin with this first question. A community free from what? See, in Galatians uh, 3, 3, earlier in this letter, uh, before the passage that we read this morning, uh, the Apostle Paul gets to the main issue of why he's writing to these, this, the, this network of churches in the first place. In Galatians 3, 3, he's, he asks them this rhetorical and very, very salty question. He says, are you so foolish? Great way to start a sentence if you're trying to build friends and influence people, right? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you now becoming mature in Jesus, formed into the image of Jesus, becoming a human in the model of Jesus by the flesh? See, here's what's going on in the context of these, these, this network of churches in Galatia at the time that Paul's writing, the reason that he's writing. Uh, it's, it's written to these network of churches who've be, begun to think that their right standing before God, we'll unpack that a little bit more later, but uh, they've begun to think that their right standing before God had something to do with their performance. They had begun by the Spirit, which is to say that they had received the Word of God that Jesus had done for them, what they couldn't have done for themselves. They encountered the empowering presence of God's Spirit when they expressed faith in Jesus. They were beginning to be transformed as a new community and new people in the power of the Holy Spirit by, by the power that God supplies in his grace, not from, from uh, self-driven effort. They'd begun by the Spirit, but they had begun to think that they needed to be now become mature based on their performance, that their right standing before God had something to do with their 
performance. And in this particular case, we just know from the context, things that the Apostle Paul says, and what we know of what was going on in the early church at that time, they had begun to think this largely, uh, well, kind of a mixed group of uh, people of a Jewish background and people of a non-Jewish background, they had begun to think that in order to have right standing before God, they needed to keep some of the ritual requirements of the Old Testament. Um, and so they had they'd taken this posture, begun by the Spirit, begun by responding to the grace of God that Jesus had done something for them that they could not have done for themselves, and now they were beginning to think that it had something to do with their performance. In this case, ritual observance of the Old Testament law. Now, um, before we go any further, we need to address this idea of right standing before God. Because I think when I say that, many of us that just sounds, for so many of us, that sounds so abstract and theoretical. Like, right standing before God, like, cool, I, I want to have, like, be right with God, but practically, functionally, like, in my experience day-to-day life, like, what does that have to do with anything? And this longing for right standing before God, what the writers of the New Testament call righteousness, to be righteous, or, or sometimes to be justified, it's the same root word in the original language, to be righteous before God, it's not just about where you go when you die. Now, it has eternal implications. It's not not that, but it's not just about where you go when you die. So much more than that, it's about what we think makes us worthwhile. Like what actually makes us whole as humans. And that wholeness in our humanity has eternal implications because, our, because human, our, the, the, the human soul is eternal and we will stand before God one day and, and that will have implications for what happens after we die. But so much more than just what happens after we die, it's about what we think makes us worthwhile, what we think makes us whole. One writer expressed this idea of righteousness, this idea of right standing before God. It could be expressed in the question, what do you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility? You know, we have this longing to be enough, to have a sense of personal credibility, something that makes our lives worthwhile, makes us worthwhile with eternal implications. And when we we translate that to our relationship with God, it's, it's, it's this idea of what makes us right before God. What do you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility? And while we, while we might be drawn to totally different things than this, this network of churches in Galatia in the first century were drawn to, to give them a sense of personal credibility. We nevertheless have a deep desire for right standing before God, whether we would call it that or not. We have a deep desire to have personal credibility, something that makes us whole. We may not be tempted to find that in keeping uh, ritual practices from the Old Testament law, but we are going to be drawn to something to make ourselves whole, to count on, to give us a sense of personal credibility for wholeness, for righteousness. We're looking to something, whether we realize it or not. And this can be expressed in all kinds of different ways. It's not just about looking for it in religious ways or, or, uh, or, or moral performance. It could be in stuff that has nothing to do with, directly at least, with the spiritual life. And yet it's something that we lean on because we think if we just did that or had that or were that type of person, we would be enough. We would have personal credibility. We would be righteous. There's a, um, a resource called the Gospel-Centered Life that... Uh, 
provides such an incredibly helpful list of some common ways that we look for righteousness, some common things that we lean on for personal credibility, some common things that we, like the church in Galatia, would turn to that having begun by the Spirit, we now seek to be perfected in what the New Testament writers call the flesh. Here are some common, common things that, they, uh, that, that these writers point out that are common uh, areas that we might turn to to look for personal credibility, to look for righteousness. See if, 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 if you don't resonate with one of these in at least some small way. One they point out is what they call job righteousness. Here's how they describe it. I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me. What makes me, gives me a sense of personal credibility is I'm good at my job. Or at least I work hard at my job, not like those slackers down the hall. I work hard. It's job righteousness. Another family righteousness. Because I do things right as a parent, however you define that, I'm more godly than the parents who can't control their kids. So I'm a good parent. I'm not like one of those lazy parents. I'm not one of those permissive parents. I'm not one of those overly strict parents. I'm a good parent. That's what makes me worthwhile. That's what gives me a sense of righteousness. Theological righteousness. I have good theology, so God prefers me over those who have bad theology. Now, is theology, having good theology, a good thing or a bad thing? great thing. We're at church, right? Like we want to think rightly about God. We want to form our minds in the image of Jesus to think about God the way that Jesus thought about God, to come to, to, come to God and want to know him for who he really is, not just because we care about good ideas, but because we care about God himself, relationally wanting to know him. Great thing. But is that what gives you right standing before God? Is that what makes you whole? I have good theology. So God prefers me over those heathens with bad theology intellectual righteousness. I'm better read, more articulate, and more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. Schedule righteousness. I'm self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than others. Flexibility righteousness. In a world that's busy, I'm flexible and relaxed. I go to church on the beach. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. Uh, mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and the marginalized the way that everyone else should. Legalistic righteousness. I don't drink, smoke, or chew or date girls who do. Too many Christians just aren't concerned about holiness these days. Financial righteousness. I manage my money wisely and stay out of debt. I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. Political righteousness. If you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate. Tolerance righteousness. I'm open-minded and charitable towards those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a whole lot like Jesus in that way. Now, those are all caricatures to some degree of these attitudes of righteousness. But do you hear how there are so many things that we might look to to give us a sense of personal credibility? There are so many ways beyond just this typical religious ways that we might, having begun by the Spirit, seek to be perfected in the flesh. And here's where it gets ugly, because the Apostle Paul calls this attitude, whether looking for it in the ritual, uh, the ritual stipulations of the Old Testament law or not, in some other area, the Apostle Paul calls this the curse of the law. Because when your sense of what will make you whole has to do with you, what you do, who you are, whatever, you will be stuck 
on a pendulum swing of ugly, self-important pride on the one hand when you think you're performing well and doing awesome and living up to whatever standard you've created, or crushing, self-pitying shame on the other when you know in your heart that you haven't lived up to the standard that you've created. You'll be on a constant pendulum swing between pride and shame, and both are symptoms of what we might call self-righteousness. You know, we think of self-righteous, the way we typically use that term is, um, is like legalistic pride, right? Someone that just, that, that think is self-important and full of pride and thinks they're, they're the right sort of person. But when you look for something to make you whole that has something to do with you, shame can be just as much of a product of self, self-righteousness as pride can. Because again, it's all about you and your performance. And so if you think you're awesome, you'll be prideful. You'll be what we usually call self-righteous. But if, if you think you're failing, you'll be full of shame, and it will be just as much a product of that same self-righteousness. The Apostle Paul says, having begun by the Spirit, do you now think you're being perfected in the flesh? Do you now think there's something that will make you whole, something that will give you a personal credibility, something that will give you right standing before God that has something to do with you? Either way, looking to our performance for a self sense of self-righteousness just reveals that our performance in and of itself isn't enough. We either end up with sinful pride or full of shame because of our sin. This is what the Apostle Paul calls the curse of the law. But Jesus' church, he says, is to be a community set free from the curse of the law, set free from the pendulum pendulum swing of pride and shame, set free from self-righteousness because Jesus has done for us what we could not have done for ourselves. Because Jesus, though we have failed to keep the real standard, the the standard that God actually has, Jesus has come, God, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, entered into human history to do for us what we could not have done for ourselves, to live a new kind of human life in our place, and to die and pay the penalty of our sin in our place, and to raise in victory over sin and death and the powers of darkness in our place, inviting us and trust in him to live his kind of life, identified in him, counted as right in him because God looks at us and sees not our sin and our failure and our tendency towards self-righteousness, but instead he sees the finished work of Jesus paid in full, the righteousness of Jesus fully trusting in God, and he counts us as in him that when we see that God has done for us what we could not have done for ourselves in Jesus, it changes everything. It sets us free from the pendulum, pendulum swing of pride and shame because it has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with our performance, either in success or failure. It draws us into the presence of God, not based on what we've done, but based on what Jesus has done, and it crushes self-righteousness at its source. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3.13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, by bearing our curse, our penalty, our tendency towards self-righteousness in our place. Jesus' church is to be a place, is it to be a community and a people set free from bondage to self-righteousness in all its ugly forms. Set free from religious self-righteousness, yes. Set free from all other forms of self-righteousness also. It's to be a place where we empty ourselves of ourselves and come to God and therefore come to each other not based on our performance, Not based on us, but based on being loved by God. Based on being a recipient of God's grace. It's to be a place of freedom.
freedom from having to earn, freedom to having to prove, freedom to having to perform, free from self-righteousness. So we're a community free from the curse of the law, free from self-righteous and all, self-righteousness in all its ugly forms. That is true of us, by the way, declared true. God is, God, when we trusted in Jesus, if, you're, if you have trusted in Jesus, or if, or if that's something that God draws you to do in his grace later down the line, if you're just here exploring faith in Jesus, like you are declared by the God of the universe righteous before him, right standing before him, with nothing that has to do with you and everything that has to do with his love for you in his grace. But actually living that out practically is another thing, isn't it? So we're community f- set free from self-righteousness, but what are we set free for? And that's also what the Apostle Paul will get into here. Free not only from something, but free for something. Verses 13 and 14 in Galatians 5, this is what he says. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. So freedom from self-righteousness is the playing field for serving one another in love. He says you're set free. You're set free from self-righteousness in all its ugly forms. But don't use that freedom as just another opportunity for the flesh. In other words, don't use that freedom as an op- yourself free from self-righteousness. You got nothing to prove, nothing to earn. You're loved by God, but don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh because that would just be going back into some form of self-righteousness, defining right and wrong on your terms and not God's terms. He says, instead, your freedom is to be the playing field for serving one another in love. That's what we're set free for, that we would be a new kind of community that rather than proving things for ourselves, being focused and obsessed with ourselves and our performance and being the right kind of person and defining our sense of wholeness in and of ourselves. Instead, we're loved by God, set free from self-righteousness, and now free to serve one another in love. And here's how this is so powerful. When I, when I know that I have nothing left to prove, when I know that I have nothing left to earn, when I know that I'm loved by God, based on nothing that has to do with me and my performance, I am free to love one another, love other people with nothing to prove and no ulterior motive and nothing to gain and nothing to get from you and do the calculus in my head. I'm doing this thing and am I going to get something back for it? And is this going to make me look good? Is this the kind of community that's going to like boost my standing? Or I'm free to love. We're free from self-righteousness, but we're free for serving one another in love. And as a very important side note, before we move on from here, when you imagine the dangerous aspects of the flesh, he says, don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh. When you imagine the dangerous aspects of the flesh for a community, what do you imagine? That word flesh is this word that comes up in scripture, and if you're familiar at all um, with the New Testament, it's kind of this thing that comes up, and maybe in some translations, they'll translate that word as, uh, as sinful nature or something like that, which is a, is a, a pretty good interpretation of, of this word flesh. But when you imagine the danger that the flesh poses to a community, what do you imagine? 
you know, for many, especially if, you, if you've been in and around church communities for a while, our knee-jerk reaction to that word is some sort of like sin of appetite, right? It's something to do with greed or materialism or some sort of, some sort of sexual thing or something like that. Like that's what comes to our mind when we think of the flesh. But here, the Apostle Paul contrasts the flesh against serving one another in love. So when the Apostle Paul thought of the danger that the flesh posed, the danger that the sinful nature posed to a community, for Paul, the threat of the flesh was the failure to serve one another in love. His idea of the opposite of the flesh was serving one another in love. And I wonder how often in church communities we've been hamstrung because we haven't thought of love, love as Jesus defines it, and that's important, but we haven't thought of love as the main expression of maturity. I wonder how often not thinking of love as the main expression of maturity has hamstrung us from being the kind of community that he wants us to be. And I wonder how many people have grown skeptical of church community because of the wounds of that error because we fail to see that love, as Jesus defines it, is, the, is the, the thing that in itself is the opposite of the flesh, the benchmark of maturity. We are set free from self-righteousness, but we're set free for loving each other by serving one another in love. Finally, we'll close with this. We're to be a community set free how? So saying all those things sounds great. Awesome, right? All in. Don't want, want to be set free from a community. Uh, want to be part of a community that's set free from self-righteousness. I want to be a part of a community that because of that serves one another in love. Like, yes, sign me up for all of it. But how? How do, I, do we actually live that out? And this is what the Apostle Paul says in verse 16. He says, don't use your freedom in verse uh, 13 and 14. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to the flesh, but serve one another in love. And then he says in verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, we don't have time to do a full, thorough, deep dive of the life in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, but in, in this passage, there's some really helpful images for what's going on here. Because if we walk by the power of the Spirit, the Apostle Paul says, then we won't, desire, we won't live in the flesh, which means we will serve one another in love because we will see that we're set free from self-righteousness. So the key here to all this and practically living and experiencing this experiencing this is that we would walk in the Spirit. But what the heck does that mean? And there's two really helpful images that we'll close with that, that, that uh, move us towards life in the Spirit. The first is this image of fruit. You know, this, is, this passage covers a, a very well-known verse about the fruit of the Spirit. And it's the, the fruit is this idea, this is the result uh, of the Spirit's kind of life. This is what the Spirit produces. So a fruit tree produces fruit, and you can know what kind of fruit tree it is by looking at its fruit, right? So on our, on our uh, deck patio area at our house, we have a little orange tree that is struggling very, very hard because we're not very good orange tree gardeners or whatever you call it. But we know it's an orange tree because last spring it produced an orange. Actually, it was a green, but it was an orange, right? So it's struggling, but we still know that it's an orange tree because it produced an orange. And, and the same way, we can tell the life of the spirit because we can see the spirit's kind of life worked out in the fruit, in the fruit of someone's life, the, the, what we actually see in someone's life. And he lists this, this, uh, this kind of 
character qualities that are true of the life of the spirit. And it's fruit singular, not fruits plural. So we're not supposed to like obsess over a checklist like, okay, do I have enough love? And do I have enough self-control? Do I have enough joy? Like, it's not about that. It's about this is what it looks like when the life of the spirit gets a hold of someone. And this image of fruit is so helpful because I can't make my orange tree grow oranges. It grows oranges because it's an orange tree. I can't make the Spirit of God produce the Spirit's fruit in my life. He does that because of his grace, because he has chosen to make his presence with me, because Jesus has done for me what I couldn't have done for myself. But I can set the right conditions for my orange tree. I can cultivate my orange tree. I can create a new environment for my orange tree that wouldn't naturally exist in the place where it is so that it can thrive. And I can cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in my life. You can cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You can create an environment that's good for the Spirit's fruit in your life. Relationships that are, that are conducive to the work of the Spirit, that encourage you towards Jesus. Habits and rhythms that encourage you towards Jesus. Soaking God's word in your mind, connecting with God in prayer, practicing rest and Sabbath to give your life room to breathe so that you can actually hear from the Spirit. Gathering with God's people regularly to worship and to connect and hear teaching from God's word and worship in the community of, of, of the church, the new spiritual family in Jesus. We can create a spirit-friendly environment in our lives. It's God's grace that produces it. It's the spirit who does it. We can't make it happen, but we can cultivate an environment that makes it easier for the spirit to do what the spirit wants to do. We can be good farmers. We can create a new environment. And in so doing, the spirit will produce his kind of life so that we serve one another in love because we've been set free from self-righteousness. But it's not just about that. It's not just about setting a right environment. We also see this last, last verse of this passage that it's a response to knowing what God has done for us. It's about our identity, about knowing who we are. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He's saying, we live a new kind of life. We've crucified the flesh because from God's perspective, that's what's already happened. And now we live out that kind of life. But he says, the reason we would do that is because what? Because we belong to Christ Jesus. The life of the Spirit's not just about having a, a rhythms of life and an environment in our life that make it easy for the Spirit to produce his kind of fruit by his grace. It's about having a, a posture of open-handedness before God because we know who we are. We know we belong to Christ Jesus because we look at Jesus and in Jesus, we see a God who has done for us what we couldn't have done for ourselves. We look to Jesus and we see a God that in the face of our sin, in the face of our many creative ways of being self-righteous, of defining righteousness and a way of being whole on our own terms that's convenient for us and props ourselves up, even if we would never say it out loud and never even really acknowledge it to ourselves in our, in our own unique ways of living in the flesh, of living outside of God's design for our lives, God has looked at all that and he has come. And he's not only come, but he's entered in. So much so that he, in Jesus, would go to the cross, dying in our place, bearing our unrighteousness that we might be counted righteous. And we see a God who loves us selflessly like that. When we see a God who would give himself for us, who loves us even though it costs him, 
it changes everything. It reminds us who we are. We belong to Christ Jesus. And so right now as we close and we respond, we have to look at Jesus. To remember that we belong to Jesus. We belong to a God who has come and done for us what we couldn't have done for ourselves. Who has come and loved us in our sin. Who has borne the penalty of our sin in himself that we might be set free. We look at a God of self-giving love for broken people like me and broken people like you. We remember that we belong to Jesus. Right now, we're going um, to take some time just to reflect and do business with God to realign with the Spirit of God that we might be a community that remembers that we're set free. Be a community that remembers that our freedom is the playing field for loving one another by serving one another in love. But it all begins by aligning ourselves with the Spirit by seeing who Jesus is. And so right now, we're just going to have some time for, of, of some guided prayer of personal reflection to really internalize what, what God wants to say to us in the spirit. And we'll close with this. But right now, as we just think through what God might be saying to us in this passage, I want us to invite us all to um, just take a posture of openness before God. God's made us body, soul, and spirit. And our, our bodies and our spiritual life are intertwined in this mysterious kind of interrelated way. And so what we do with our bodies helps us connect with God. And so take a moment right now and get a comfortable position, a com whatever position just helps you be open to God. For me, oftentimes it's putting my palms up as a reminder that I'm receiving. Looking out over the ocean, closing your eyes, whatever, whatever it feels right to you. Just have a moment right now. Take a deep breath. A moment of silence. Listen to the waves. Quiet your heart before the Lord. And right now, as we, as we were just opening God's word, if there was anything that came to mind or anything that you're just bringing into this morning um, that you need to do business with God with. Maybe there's an, a, a sin that you haven't acknowledged before God, something you thought or said or did from this last week or this morning, <laughs> getting yourself out the door, whatever it is. There's just something that you know that was not under the influence of the Spirit. That was me living a self-controlled life. It's me. Maybe, maybe it was open disobedience to God. Maybe it was just apathy towards God, whatever it is. There's something that you said or did or thought that you need to do business with God about. Just acknowledge it before God. Name it. Name it for what it is. Name it as sin. Knowing that God's grace covers you, it's safe to do so. There's nothing to lose because our identity, our security before God is wrapped up in Jesus, not our performance. If there's anything to name, name it before God. Anything that you felt convicted of from God's word. Maybe it was a a form of self-righteousness that you heard or there's something that God's word brought to mind, but just name it before God. If there's any fear or doubt or insecurity that's not necessarily sin, it's not immoral, it's just, it's hanging over your heart and, and standing between you and God. It's something that you haven't really fully released and let God hold with you. 
It's fear. It's a doubt. It's something going on in your heart. Name that before God, too. Remember that he calls us to cast our anxieties on him because he cares. And now just with whatever you felt like you needed to bring before God, remember the truth of who you are in Jesus over those things. That you belong to Christ Jesus. Right now just listen to me speak the words of Galatians 2.20 over you. That if, if you have trusted in Jesus, if you've believed upon him as your Savior, the words of Galatians 2.20, the truth is, the truest thing about you is that you, your flesh, your shadow side has been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. It's no longer your shadow side who lives, but, your, but Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. Galatians 2.20. Promise of 1 John 1.9 that if you confess your sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That as the psalmist says, God has separated us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. You are loved by God. That you're indwelt with the Spirit of God. The very presence of God himself in the Holy Spirit dwells with you and empowers you for Jesus' kind of life. And that God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're sons of God, and by it we cry, Abba, Father. That we're sons and daughters of God, and by it we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit wants to show you how much God loves you and the extent to which he's gone to adopt you as his own. Right now, I'm going to close in prayer over us. And um, we invite you to take communion. And in taking communion, we're remembering what's true of us in Jesus. That Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed. That we might become his. That we might belong to him, be loved by him. That we might be set free from our broken tendency to self-righteousness. And brought in as his sons and daughters, adopted as his. So let me pray, and then, and then after I pray, I just invite you to, in your own time, come up and take the elements of your follower of Jesus, his body broken, his blood shed, his, the, the cracker and the juice remind us of, and just internalize again in this physical act that you're loved by God, that you've been bought with a price, adopted as his own, and there's nothing in Jesus that you could ever do that would make God love you less. Let me pray for us, and then we'll close. God, we love you. We're so grateful for your grace, grateful for everything that you are for us in Jesus. And I pray, God, now, as we close, that you would help us to receive the word. Help us, God, to become a community that's free from our broken tendency to self-righteousness, our broken tendency to try to become whole through our performance, and to define good and evil on our own terms, not on your terms. Thank you that, Jesus, you've done for us what we couldn't have done for ourselves. 
I pray that knowing all of that, that that would be the playing field for us to serve one another in love, to be a community of freedom. And I pray, God, that we would do it as we walk in the power of the Spirit. Would you help us to live lives aligned to your Spirit, connected with you, having an environment that is conducive to your kind of life, Holy Spirit, but doing so as a response to your grace, knowing that you've loved us. We see it. We see that you love us, God, right now. Pray if anyone's struggling to see it, if anyone hears the words and sees it written on the page in Scripture, but just is struggling to believe it is true, God, I pray, Holy Spirit, right now, would you speak to them? Would you speak? Would, you, would your spirit right now bear witness with their spirit that they're loved by God? And God, even if, if they don't feel it in the moment, God, I pray that you would just continue pursuing them. Would you open us up as a community, each of us, to receive from you, to receive truth of who we are and know that the truest thing about us is what you say is true. Would that set us free? Would that set us free with you and to be free as a new community following you? And we remember that all this is true because of Jesus, because your body was broken and your blood was shed. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.